This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Imagine it's Christmas Day, your child is seriously ill, and you're sent to a children's hospital only... The hospital can't immediately treat or diagnose your kid because it's had a cyber attack. This happened this past year to sick kids in Toronto. It's a hospital for children. And it was hit with a ransomware attack, which is a type of malicious software that blocks access to a computer system or deletes your data until a ransom is paid. And this incident got me thinking and looking around. And I suddenly noticed that ransomware is everywhere. Right now, Indigo Books and Music Inc., Canada's biggest bookstore chain, has been facing a ransomware attack since February 8th. That's almost a month. Energy pipelines, our government's websites, various companies have all reported attacks of this type, and they all seem to fade into the background. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I delved into this topic, and it's anything but straightforward. Take sick kids. The attack starts on December 18th. On December 31st, reports emerged that the group behind the attack had apologized and offered a decryption key meaning it wouldn't have to pay the ransom. Why? Well, in a statement, the group said, the partner who attacked the hospital violated our rules and is no longer in our affiliate program. Having rules, having an affiliate program, this all made me realize how little I knew about cyber attacks, who was behind this, and I asked around. The type of ransomware that targeted Sikis was Lockbit. Uh, This is like a family of ransomware, and they have been active for very, very long times. That was Ali Degantana, a professor at the University of Guelph and a Canada Research Chair in Cybersecurity and Threat Intelligence. So Lockbit. Yeah, it's called Lockbit, L-O-C-K-Bit, right? So I can give you a little bit of history, you know. Uh, it was around about three years ago, like uh, around about right before the pandemic, early 2020, late 2019. It was when the hacking group started offering something called ransomware as a service. This sounds comical. Who would want ransomware? So what is it? What what is happening is most of those hacking groups who are behind and writing the code for these ransomwares, they do not want to engage themselves with the target, right? Because when you engage yourself with the target, it's too risky. You could be caught, and at the same time, you don't know enough about your target, so your code may not be successful. So instead of doing that, they are writing the core of the ransomware, for example, the part that is encrypting and asking for the payment, and they put some part of that for customization for your associates. So you could become associate to this ransomware as a service, you download the ransom, and then you can customize it. And for customization, you don't need to have much knowledge, right? It's just basic knowledge of the IP address and the protection, right? Okay. And then... What is happening is that you can download that and if your ransomware is successful, which means it's deploying on the target and the target is making the transaction, those hacking group behind that get a commission and give the rest back to you. And how do you know this from looking around on the dark web and studies and things like that? Uh, yeah, so there are forums out there that they are serving these ransomwares, right? And then you can join those forums and then you will get your own copy of that ransomware. It's like a proper commission-based system. So you have your own version of the ransomware and they know that this version belongs, for example, to Ali, right? 
And if that is deployed on a target and the target is making the payment, they would transfer the payment to me. They take the commission to, to transfer the payment to me, right? So this has to be extremely lucrative for somebody out there. It is. It is. So they are making huge amount of money and they are relying on the local associates to collect the information and they would launch them. So this Lockbit is running for years, right? So they have the first Lockbit, which is called ABC. And then currently they are running on a version two that can be downloaded over Tor browsers, over Darknets, right? Right. So the dark web is that part of the web that you can't access through Google. You need special software. And it's known to be where a lot of illegal transactions occur. But my basic question here is, how do the criminals know that the licensee who they're licensing the software to is going to pay them the commission and not just run away with it? Is this just based on trust? It's trust, right? So it's like there have been like groups that they create the ransom and then they didn't pay. And then in the dark web, people stop using them or stop being associated with them, right? Right. So that just based on the trust, they have been targeted everywhere in the world, United States, China, India. I have seen targets in Indonesia, in even Ukraine, right? And that was like interesting because you will see that they are targeting Russia and Ukraine at the same time, right? Uh, and the reason that they can target so many places is they are relying on their associates. So you can go download the core of that anywhere in the world. And then based on your local knowledge, you can just run it against these different targets. So <laughs> think that they are Russian groups. And the main reason that they believe that is they rarely attack uh, systems local to Russia. But I have seen that they have done that. I think people also sort of think about it and they go, oh, it's Russia. It's probably state sanctioned or state permitted. I don't think we can attribute it to Russia or any other country. They are like professional hacking teams. Uh, that they operate everywhere in the world, right? They have associates everywhere in the world. And the only reason that, for example, they may not have worked, I don't know, in Malaysia, is they don't, they probably didn't have any associate there, right? I see. So this is also, I guess, a sign that the dark web, which probably most people hadn't heard of until like a couple of years ago, just continues to get bigger and bigger. Uh, mm, I don't, I don't agree that the dark web is growing because, you know, I have looked, we were tracing the dark web for a few years. I started tracing it since 2016. And the total number of the dark web nodes are not changing that much. Okay. But, but what is happening is they become much more mature and optimized. So now you have a proper system. It becomes much very user friendly. They provide like, support, right? Customer support for these ransomware. So if you are an associate, there is a number, there is an ID that you can call and you will receive support. They help you. That's how you can customize it, right? They become much more organized and mature in terms of how they are running it. But then going back to the lock bit, so that was like, they, they are professional attackers behind this, right? And again, when you are contracting as an associate, it's not like a proper contract. I mean, when you start working and trusting, they set up some rules. And they are saying that these are what you can do and you cannot do with or ransom, right? And that's somebody that we provided for you. And apparently for this case, for the Lockbit, they have a rule that some of the targets like hospitals are not allowed. So as soon as they were aware of that, they provided the key. That's, that's one scenario, one hypothesis that actually happened. But at the same time, some people in the community believe that because there are already decryptors for some of these lock bits, ransomware that are out there. So security community already cracked their code and have some decryptors. 
because you know we don't know exactly it has been not shared to the public that what was the exact version that has been targeted sick kids and what were the details so we don't know about that but that's an alternative scenario that some people believe that the group feel that we already the security community already has the decryption key so they just stepped in and provided that to just or, or what you're saying is it's not clear that they actually did provide a key it is not clear they have claimed that they did that right Right. The hospital has never, they would never confirm it anyway, right? Even if that is provided, right? Although I can say that even if they did not provide it, there were most probably, I don't know about this version, right? But there are versions of the lock bit that the decryptor is already available to security professionals. So. Okay. That's what I was going to ask. Like, how, what do you do when this happens? Like, do like, do you have the technical capability to say, take a look at Lockbit and be like, okay, we can get rid of this. Like, we just have to like isolate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is a big community of the researchers, security researchers, that that's their work. So when we see a new sample of ransomware, we try to quickly uh, find weaknesses in the encryption technology or in the ransom itself or on the server, because there are many ways that you can deal with these scenarios, right? And come with solutions. So most of the ransomware has a shelf life, right? So their shelf life is usually around a few weeks up until the security community can come with a solution, especially in the business models like this lock bit that you will see associates sometime are deploying an old version of the ransomware. There are already decryptors available out there that can be decrypting the information and get back, right? So that's usually our first step when we see a client has been compromised. We first look into the existing decryptor and see if we have it. It could be a decryptor or it could be a way to just make the ransomware to decrypt itself, right? right. Uh, because, you know, most of these malwares are receiving order from a server. So if you can create a fake server and they believe that you are the server, they take order from you, right? So you can order them to decrypt and they will decrypt, right, the information. I see. So let me ask you a question. Everyone agrees that the scale of ransomware is increasing. How do you see this kind of weird area evolving? I mean, ransomware has been around for a very, very long time, right? And the reason that it has been increased, the number increased significantly in the past few years was not because of the technology of the hacking group. It was because of the wider adoption of Bitcoin and other types of anonymous payment systems, right? So if you look into the ransomware, they have been around for over 15 years. But prior to having Bitcoin and other crypto markets, crypto technologies for paying out there, there wasn't an easy way for the attackers to cash out the money. Then that becomes readily available. So then the ransomwares become viable business, right, for the attackers. So you saw a significant growth on that. And there are studies, research studies, that they show correlation between the price of the Bitcoin, for example, and the number of ransomware attacks. Because when that goes up, this this become like more lucrative business, right, to run. So the rise of cryptocurrency has really sort of enabled this? Boosted, right, that significantly. Wow. So the technology was out there for a very long time. Attackers were using, before ransomware, they were called vipers, right? So they came and just wiped the machine if you are not paying for them. But there was no way, no reliable way for the attackers to receive the money back then, right? I mean, we have seen the peak of that in 2021, right? That was like the peak in terms of increasing the number of the campaigns, et cetera, et cetera. And then there were a lot of consolidation because there were like many ransomware that they could not even decrypt. What I can see out there is the ransomware development is getting mature. So 
there are some major players there that's providing all types of services and they survive, right? And the rest of the less professional ones are dying. And at the same time, with more regulation and more monitoring over the crypto payments, it becomes even much more difficult nowadays for the criminals to receive the money. These days, most of the ransomware payments can be recovered, right? So we really? sometimes, we are, yeah, we ask the client to make the payment. And if the payment is made through a specific servers, the crypto servers that we can monitor, we can identify which wallet it goes to, and then we can get the variants and then recover that wallet, get the money back to the clients. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. So there's this whole underground economy with a business model, networks of associates, teams that are releasing new products, even informal contracts. Informal because you couldn't enforce them in a court of law. And on that topic, we just heard about the attackers, many of whom remain out of reach of courts because they're in another country or because we can't find them. But what about if your employer gets hacked? and your personal identity winds up in the dark web. I spoke to Matt Malone, an assistant professor at Thompson River University Faculty of Law in British Columbia, about the legal landscape in Canada. So I've been thinking a lot about the ransomware attack on Sick Kids Hospital over the 2022 holiday season. It's not the first time a hospital or even a children's hospital has been attacked. What are some of the issues raised by these attacks from a legal perspective? I think critical infrastructure has been a, a pretty common target for you know cyber attacks writ large. So, for example, the Eastern Health attack uh, that essentially wobbled you know Newfoundland and Labrador's healthcare system and disrupted many you know surgeries and and other health services. And we see it as well. I mean, you know, last year. Global Affairs Canada um, was the subject of a cyber attack that essentially shut down all of its embassies and stations abroad, uh, their their networks. And there's been very, very little discussion about that. So we know critical infrastructure is a really common target. In the ransomware context, a, a good example is uh, not just sort of hospitals, but also military contractors. There was a contractor named Top Aces, which is based in Montreal, which helped design or supply parts for fighter jets which was the subject of a ransomware attack. I think overall, the really interesting pieces here from my perspective are, what are the obligations of these organizations to disclose that they have been you know, the subject of a ransomware attack? We are still mapping you know, what the proper legislative response here is. Like, what are, what are the rules? What are the right rules? I mean, these are difficult questions. But I think one of them to begin with is, timely notification and, you know, timely reporting either to individuals or to the government. Like I was looking at the Canadian Center for Cybersecurity Cyber Threat Bulletin. I was somewhat amazed that they said in the first half of 2021, ransomware attacks increased 151%. They said in Canada, the average cost of a data breach, whether that's ransomware or something else, is 6.35 million Canadian. And that they knew of 235 ransomware incidents against Canadian victims. That's already like over a billion dollars. Yeah, I mean, there's a significant amount of money at play here. But the amount of money that's involved in ransomware helps us understand a little bit that it's not necessarily always ideologically motivated. It's rather a simple financial calculus. Right. I've heard repeatedly that the incidents that receive news coverage, maybe it's often ransomware, represent just a tiny fraction of the total incidents, but we're not hearing about all the cyber attacks. (laughs) I mean, this is a bad example. Um, But it's kind of like, you know, if someone pees in the pool, (laughs) 
like it taints the whole pool. You know what I mean? Yeah. But ransomware is just like a moment where like you can sort of see clearly where the P is taking place. <laughs> I mean, that's like a terrible analogy. But it's sort of true because the, the real issue is that, you know, you have these like leakage problems in the overall cybersecurity ecosystem, right? And, and, and I think addressing and thinking about those problems with a bit of a broader lens helps us understand why and how ransomware a- ends up afflicting us as intensely as it does. Here's another question I have for you. It seems like the legal rules are sort of a work in progress. I think that's right. One of the things that's really telling about this is that you know, agencies and federal institutions that we have in Canada, which work in the area of cybersecurity, like the Communication Security Establishment and the Canadian Center for Cybersecurity, are truly world-class organizations, but they sort of operate in a framework that is a little bit antiquated. And so I think one way in which we can see that is the lack of any kind of formal requirements to notify these entities when there have been ransomware attacks. And we sort of see a vacuum in the law in this space in other respects too, right? Like what are the rules around municipalities or provinces paying for ransomware attacks? You know, in the United States, you've seen sort of a flood of laws that prevented jurisdictions from actually paying. So one of the reasons why people would not want to notify are pretty obvious, right? I mean, if you suffer some kind of data breach or some kind of ransomware attack, you know, that can undermine your brand or it can it, it can bring a lot of really bad publicity. So it's the same thing as suffering trade secret theft or confidential information theft, where that type of attack is just bad publicity. And yet, publicizing that type of information is important because it helps disperse norms around taking proper safeguards. So in Canada, we do have some mandatory notification requirements. They became effective in 2018. But they're introduced through our privacy legislation. So it's a little strange because there's an obligation on, you know, federal institutions as well as private sector institutions that are covered by federal privacy legislation. And I'm saying that a bit carefully because, you know, BC, Alberta and Quebec have their own legislation. But if personal information is transiting but from those jurisdictions to other jurisdictions and it gets captured by the federal privacy legislation. Huh. So this legislation does have a duty to report to the Office of the Privacy Commissioner, as well as individuals themselves, when there have been breaches of, of, of security safeguards. And so this is actually the source where we really find out about breaches involving the government and breaches involving the private sector. But the problem with this legislation is that it actually isn't really focused on ransomware. So it captures a lot of other things. It'll capture things like inadvertent disclosures, loss. So it's a little bit wider. It'll capture things like if an employee of a federal government institution sent an email to the wrong person containing personal information, then that would get reported. I see. I mean, what's the deal with Bill C-26? Probably most people haven't heard of it. So Bill C-26 was introduced in the summer of 2022. It's only passed first reading, so it's at a very uh, you know early stage in its legislative life. The first part is a body of amendments to the Telecommunications Act, which have attracted a lot of scrutiny over some of the intrusions on uh, civil liberties and the lack of transparency that those amendments make, basically tantamount to empowering the Minister of Public Safety to, to order telecommunications companies to shut off uh, someone's internet. I'm quite interested in the second part of Bill C-26, which is the Critical Cyber Systems Protection Act, which actually identifies and categorizes a series of industries and actors as critical, quote unquote, and 
obligates them to undertake certain actions with regards to engaging in certain cybersecurity practices, specifically notifying the communication security establishment about certain activities that it takes. But I think what we really need to do, in addition to ramping up enforcement resources to crack down on these actors, is we need to get serious about cracking down on entities that are not taking cybersecurity seriously and creating tools to really shift the burden from users and consumers to entities that that simply don't take this responsibility seriously. I'll offer one example, and it's the example of a bank in British Columbia, which essentially left personal information of consumers uh, unencrypted on one of its websites, and then malicious cyber actors from the People's Republic of China acquired the information, and then from uh, phone numbers based, I believe, in Utah, started sending uh, phishing attacks, posing as the bank, to the customers. And a lot of people lost uh, money and, you know, uh, the bank said that it had essentially taken all of the appropriate measures it should have taken. It was compliant, yada, yada, yada. When this turned into a class action for for being negligent, for, for breaching trust, for all of these types of traditional means of assigning liability in, in, in similar situations, the courts really hesitated to create responsibilities for corporate entities that are handling consumer and user data. And, and that just exemplifies the real problem we have. We need to really shift from making it the responsibility of users and consumers who sign away all their rights in you know, privacy notices or agreements or contracts that they don't read to those actors who, when they're handling our data or our personal information, really should be obligated to take intense safeguards and, and, and be punished if they don't. I think that's really one of the great shortcomings of Canadian privacy legislation and data protection legislation is that that's not how they work. The rules around notification seem hazy. So as my guests have been saying, the people involved in these attacks are located all over the world. So this is an international issue. And it's not just ransomware attacks. Cyber attacks can mean espionage or trade secret theft. And it can mean attacks that are tantamount to warfare. So I spoke to Branka Marian, a senior researcher at Project Plowshares, the Canadian Peace Research Institute. And she studies emerging technologies and things like cyber warfare. She told me it's not just people looking to make money. Some of the actors involved in this are motivated by patriotism, say. There's also state actors and even state-enabled actors who are only loosely connected to governments. It's basically this whole new front in warfare that's opening up. At least in Canada and the U.S., none of the cyber attacks so far, like the ones on sick kids or other hospitals, have led to the type of visceral response that, say, maybe a past terrorist attack did. They've kind of flown below the radar. So I asked her about whether she thinks that's true and why. I think what's really interesting about this is that states really tend to function in what we call these gray zone areas where it's not really escalating uh, to a point where it would attack some sort of piece of really significant infrastructure, but rather it remains in that threshold just below that. So just below what would entail or require response. And you think that's purposeful? That is absolutely purposeful. You know, there's sort of an understanding that there is a line there among states that they should not be crossing. So espionage, of course, happens and there's, you know, acceptance of it to some level in international relations. 
But then, you know, countries are now, you know, in international discussions at the United Nations, you know, talking about, well, what is that line really? Does election interfere in something where you would say that requires some kind of response? Um, and what we've seen so far from the different activities is that they tend to be diffused. They tend to remain below something that would require really significant response. It's been about a year since Russia invaded Ukraine and the world geopolitics have reoriented. And some of the countries that you think of as being hotbeds of cyber hacking, like Russia, China is a name that comes up a lot, North Korea, like the fact that our relations are getting worse, not better. I mean, is that likely to, you know, sort of further exacerbate this problem? Yeah, I think anytime there is upheaval geopolitically, as we're seeing now, the risk for escalations through different means and different ways internationally also rise. And so I think what we're seeing now is sponsors, right, in the war in Ukraine over the last year, different groups joining and, you know, states supporting Ukraine and then the Russian activists. And one of my key concerns is that, you know, cyber attacks can really spill over across borders. They can spill over across industries and, and have that profound impact that you cannot always anticipate and at times cannot control, right? So I think that that, to some extent, has impacted the responses that we're seeing from various actors, because no one wants there to be these unintended consequences, you know, around the world. But that is something that, you know, if there is some sort of geopolitical crisis, that risk heightens, uh, that you will have these unintended impacts. Um, There will be some action that's pursued. And then, you know, that inability to really maybe control it once you kind of set it off is is another concern that, that that is actually really quite important to pay attention to. There's just one last thing. I asked Ali Degantana from the University of Guelph what practical advice he gives to companies about cyber hygiene. Well, basically, before any attack, you need to make sure that you are having regular backups and your backup system is disconnected from your normal system so an attacker cannot encrypt both your backup and your own system. That's like the main thing that you need to have to protect yourself against any type of ransomware attacks. The second is going with always minimum privilege or minimum access deployment in your environment because the main reason that most of these ransomware are successful is a user that's supposed not to have any execute privilege has the execute privilege and they can run the files, right? And encrypt the machine. So minimum privilege would be very helpful. And using multi-factor authentication, that's quite important. That would I mean, limit the number of compromise accounts significantly. So these three are the things can be done before being compromised, right, or being attacked. And the other thing that I can suggest to all companies before being attacked is make sure that they have contact of security professionals or the companies that can help them if these things goes wrong, right? And then when you are compromised or saying these kind of things, get the help as soon as possible. Especially for the ransomware these days, most of them can be decrypted with no payment is necessary. If you talk with the right professionals, they would be able to decrypt them. So that's the first thing they can do. Second thing that we are not recommending, but we are seeing it out there is some companies decide to make the payment. Again, if you have the help of professionals, they can help you in negotiating and reducing the ransom amounts. There are like negotiators out there that are doing that. And at the same time, 
if the hacking group is asking for ransomware to be paid in in means that we can track, we might be able even to track the wallets. And before they get access to those information, we would be able to just retrieve the wallets and give your money back, right? So that's like during that period. And after that, after the ransomware attack, make sure that you do a complete security assessment of your system, right? Make sure that there's no backdoor left on your machines, identify how the attackers get in, and then go back to normal business. One last question. You know, everything is connected to the internet. And on some level, they're going to roll that back a little bit and move away from that because it actually makes them vulnerable in important ways. Mm, I have seen attempts to do so, but then the companies quickly realize that that is not economic in terms of the money. Whenever I present that option to the decision makers, they always go with uh, having local access uh, connection in their environment because these are like better way to run your business in many ways, like functionality, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, the rule of thumb that I always have for all security professionals is you cannot fight against the functionality that is required by the company. Okay. If you put a security rule that limits the functionality, people will find a way around that <laughs> and they will do it without you being able to observe them, right? So if there is security professional out there that trying to limit the business needs on the basis of the security, my recommendation to the board members is always to fire them and hire someone else who can find a better solution around. So I don't think that's an option. The best option is to secure security technologies, security programs that can let your business to use the latest technology being always connected, but still secure yourself. I mean, unless that you're in the military sector, there are some sectors, right, like military, that they have the bandwidth and uh, the capacity uh, to not think about the viability of their solution and just run it. So except those sectors, the specific sectors for everyone else, I don't think that's an option. You need to learn and make your make the best use of technology, but in a secure manner. Okay. Well, this is really helpful, Ali. I really appreciate you jumping on the phone with me to talk with me about ransomware and everything you know about it. It's great talking to you. So that's it. Thank you to my guests, Ali Degantana from University of Guelph, Matt Malone from Thompson Rivers University, and Branka Marian from Project Plowshares. Thank you for listening to Down to Business. Bryce Hall composed and performed the original music on this show, designed our logo, and produced this episode. Victoria Wells, Noella Ovid, and Pamela Heaven provided web support and editing. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll return with more episodes of Down to Business. Until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.